Hi there, um, readers of Undefended, Undefeated. I wanted to try out um, Substack's audio feature and also just see if audio is something that people enjoy. I'll also put this same text in text uh, as a newsletter to you, but I wanted to try speaking to you and ideally with you um, for this coda to the the two-part series, Four Words for the Art You Love. So um, this year I put together a couple of meditations on the critic Robert Hughes's um, kind of beautiful foursome um, for evaluating art, lucidity, deliberation, probity, and calm. And if you've read those and you saw that I worked through both how, how to think about studio arts, so things like painting and sculpture, but then also maybe trying to connect them to the more recent practice of social practice art. And so we looked at um, a couple of works in that vein, um, Fritz Haig's Edible Estates, um, Haircuts for Children, uh, and then at the end, one of my favorite pieces of artwork ever, kind of durational artworks, and that is Tam's Year 10, uh, with the coalition kind of facilitated by Laurie Jo Reynolds. And I got a really interesting um, question from the philosopher and scholar Andrew Beer, um, who wrote to me and said it was okay to read this question out loud, and I wanted to answer it kind of um, live and also in text. So Andrew writes... I knew nothing of social practice art before, and now I'm very glad that I do. One question occurs to me. When exactly does a simple social practice become social practice art? I think, for example, of the vigil at Bald Knob Cross, that was part of the uh, Tamsier 10, which by itself seems to be a social practice. Any kind of communal worship, in fact, seems to fit that description. Was its being photographed and the photograph's inclusion in a larger artistic project what made it social practice art? Is the idea that the social practice becomes the object of art, that the practice becomes the medium of the artist, and so the participants in the practice may have a particular practical objective, but the artist who renders the practice as art is concerned chiefly with creating something beautiful, he asks. And these are all really good questions, and I realized even after I hit publish um, on that piece that I had not really answered, you know, common questions that come up about social practice art as art. There are people who are interested in like, okay, I can accept this as something interesting and compelling, but uh, is it art and does that matter? And on what terms would we count it as such? So I just I would offer to you, Andrew, and then other people who may be interested three ways for thinking about um, the way that social practice kind of can function as artwork in ways that are that are interesting. One is quite simple, the first one, and that is uh, the notion of the frame. So if you think about the way that a frame functions around a painting, it has this very practical structural job to do, but it also, it puts a literal kind of draws a line around some vision of the world. So it arrests and it holds and it supports. Um, that vision of the world to try to bring your attention to it, to concentrate your attention on it. And this is the same, to, you know, we would say the same, not about just frames for 2D artworks, but the pedestal uh, on which a sculpture sits, or indeed just the, you know, white cube space, the, the big space of the gallery or the museum that sets apart and, and brings some kind of, you know, calm space around to set apart 
this work for you to see as framed, framed for your contemplation. And that is a, you know, very classical, you know, kind of idea about the, the standalone artwork. Um, but you can think of the frame in another way. You can think of the frame as drawing that conceptual line around any such activity. So maybe it's the temporal line of the curtain in a theater space, right? That sort of draws a frame around action that draws our attention. But in social practice art, the frame is drawn around what may be otherwise, yes, social practices or everyday life even. And for some people that feels like, well, that's that's a bit of, you know, artifice. And I think, yes, that is a bit of artifice, but it does the same function. That is to say, it draws your attention, it enchants and draws your attention to what would otherwise pass you by as just the immersive, you know, kind of discontinuous um, experience of everyday life and concentrates your, uh, your uh, focus on it so that you see it with those new estranged eyes, that you see it again in, in a new light. So for example, if you look at Tanya Bruguera's work called Immigrant Movement International, that work was a two-year durational work of opening a storefront in Queens in New York and offering pro bono uh, English language classes and immigration law uh, you know, services and advice uh, for people in Queens. And it was nothing more and nothing less than that, this kind of storefront that opened as an artwork. It was at the behest of art, art institutions. It was funded as art. And it drew a frame then around, yes, probably similar practices that are happening everywhere, but because it was both a temporary provision, because it was presented and framed as culture, it drew your attention and an audience to it and a kind of provocation around it about uh, this practice as such and the future uh, that might hold that same practice or that might disappear as culture. And all the questions that are attendant uh, to that, is this a kind of... Uh, framed activity? Is this activity one that we want to see in the world? And so it's being put forth as a proposal in the form of an art, an artwork that then has these implications for its use value in general. Could it go out and continue um, uh, as a practice in general by policy? Um, and that brings me to the second kind of point that Tanya Bruguera has famously said, you know, that she doesn't want an art that points at the thing, at the subject, she says. She wants an art that is the thing. And so this is the question of this sort of second way of looking at it. And that is the notion of utility in art. Can utility be a vernacular in art? Can utility be a kind of uh, result of art? Can utility be uh, a subject at all? And I think a lot of times if people are schooled in a kind of... Um, classical notion of the contemplative object, it has to sort of exit use value and be concerned with expression and metaphor and symbol. But that, that's precisely what Bruguera is pushing against to say, I don't always want the sign and the symbol that points you to the thing. What if the thing itself could be framed and presented as the art? What if utility could take on um, that, that uh, mantle of culture uh, not as an end in itself and not as instrumentalizing. And, you know, maybe you disagree with me on this. It may be that uh, trafficking in utility gets you to that kind of, you know, efficiency and consequences. But I want to say that there is a place for utility um, as one of the languages of art. And I think that's what social practice does really well. Um, and then the third thing um, is a framing that I learned from a curator friend of mine, a man named Rory Hyde, uh, who 
uh, has been at the Victoria and Albert Museum for a long time. And the way he thinks about um, uh, curation is that he plans an exhibition of art or design work. And he thinks in his mind's eye about three kinds of audiences for that work. One, he would call, he uses a kind of water metaphor for this. And he would say, I'm planning for, in an exhibition, people who are going to engage the work as paddlers and people who are going to engage it as swimmers and people who will engage it as divers. So you get the metaphor here, right? There are people who are going to come and splash around a bit in a lightweight way, take a look at the art, take a photograph of it, appreciate perhaps the use of color, the surprise of it or something. And people who are going to swim, they're going to go a little bit deeper. They're going to kind of read the text. They're going to, you know, be interested in kind of making connections between and among artworks. And then divers, people who are going to, you know, purchase the the book at the at the bookstore, people who are going to go online and do a little more deeper research, people who are going to um, really, you know, let this this exhibition kind of send them on a on a deep dive. And the interesting thing about this is that you can say like, oh, well, that's self-evident, you know, good planning. But Rory thinks that all three of those modes of engagement are successful. In other words, an exhibition isn't just there to try to win, quote unquote, by engaging divers only. Like only if you really kind of deeply engage, are you the kind of good audience member for a work? No, no, that works succeed when they actually are effective at all three of those levels so that you can be a paddler and walk away uh, with something that, you know, is perhaps a fleeting kind of moment of encounter with a work, but that is still a success mode. And if the work is doing its job, it can reach you at that kind of level. And also again, in the mid level, and of course, in the in the deep level. And I guess this I think is is relevant to social practice art, because you can engage um, at all three of those levels um, without that the kind of trip all the way to the museum to be this sort of self-selected art lover. You can encounter social practice, in other words, on the street. And in fact, it, the street is often its very frame. So if you go back to thinking about Fritz Haig and Edible Estates, you could enjoy that coffee table book. You could sort of appreciate uh, the transformation of the front lawn into uh, a gardening space as a paddler and kind of just be interested in the kind of the quirky enigma of that and how interesting, but you could also, you know, swim around in and sort of try to do the calculations of like, what would it take to motivate a a whole neighborhood or a whole community around turning yards into gardens. And then you could look at the diving, you know, kind of person could look at, um, the, at scale, what would the sort of ecological, uh, impact be? And how would you, you know, move the, the paradigm from, the, the ornamental lawn to uh, uh, personal property that does something, you know, uh, more productive in gardening. But I, you know, all of those are success modes. And all of those are ways that you can encounter the artwork, again, outside of the professional expertise of the museum and curation. This is not to negate those kind of strong institutions and what they do for us around art history. It's just that social practice art uh, lends itself to these other kind of ways of engaging that I do think can just expand, uh, you know, one's own enjoyment of culture as culture and to see the work of culture uh, doing something more than uh, the contemplation of the beautiful, that the beautiful uh, and perhaps uh, qualified notions of the beautiful, true and good might unite themselves um, in this kind of these practices that are more out of the way, uh, but that can nourish your, you know, your insides 
and and perhaps your actions nonetheless. So Andrew, I hope that's a satisfying answer. Uh, we'll move on to other subjects in upcoming newsletters. Thanks.